With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. People are calling City Hall and the police department. Oh the God. town is under no siege. No way. Two fans, one mission to bring Major League Baseball to Oregon. Powered by the Portland Gear Store and Guardian Games, this is the Diamonds and Roses podcast. And without further ado, your hosts, Ben and David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dave. I'm John. And I'm Jack, the genial head mentor. All right, and you're listening to the (laughs) Diamonds Diamonds and Roses podcast. What's going on, Dave? Well, uh, you know, last last we spoke, we've had some we've had some colorful figures and some great history, but uh, extremely excited to have some guests in studio today. I think we have a dynamic duo in the Dave Jester recording studio. We've got uh, we've got a couple uh, local baseball legends in Oregon and in the Northwest, and specifically Portland, uh, a Portland kind of iconic uh, baseball family. All right, and we'll, we'll go around. And uh, Mr. Jack, can you introduce yourself, please? Well, my name is Jack Dunn. I saw my first baseball game of the Portland Beavers played in 1936 when I was uh, seven years old. Fell asleep in the seventh inning, but I followed the Beavers that year. They won the Pacific Coast League, 1936. Wow. And Mr. John, can you introduce I, yourself? I'm John Dunn. I grew up in Portland. I played Little League in the Tualatin Little League. In the Southwest Bay Bruth, I went to Wilson High School, Portland State University, and pitched for the Portland Mavericks. And I've also coached at Lake Oswego High School, Aloha High School, and Lewis and Clark College. Well, thank you. Uh, It's an honor to have both of you on the show uh, today. Um, This is our first part of a four-part episode with the Duns. And uh, before we get too far into things... Let's talk World Series. Let's talk about the Dodgers versus the Red Sox. Uh, what did you think of the World Series? Did you get to watch it at all? No, oh, I watched most of the series. I'm, I was hoping for seven games, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. I know you're wearing that big Boston hat there, but uh, it seemed like Boston dominated and uh, probably the best team won. I got to say, I was actually thinking that it was going to go seven. I was hoping it was going to go seven just because... I thought that you had two of the most, uh, you know, historical teams in professional baseball going at it. And to me personally, it was worth a seven game series. And I think we deserved a seven game series, yeah. but it didn't work out that way. It seemed, uh, it seemed like Boston was, was playing with house money in that they've had three championships in the last, you know, decade and a half. And it, they just, they seemed kind of confident and loose. Whereas I think the pressure was building a little bit on LA, and I think I think they were a little bit more tense, and you can see it in some of their at bats, and 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 just uh, Boston just seemed to have that kind of confident looseness. That's what I noticed. Well, I don't think there's any question that Boston was the superior team, yeah. and I think it would have taken a major effort, and maybe catch the Bo Sox when they're down mm-hmm. uh, for for the Dodgers to come out. Uh, winners in the series. I don't think there's any question about that. And I hope the L.A. fans don't uh, go ahead hunting because I think if they're objective, they'd realize that Boston 
really was the team to oh, beat. Yeah, yeah and, and there were so many times, in my opinion, that L.A. had the Red Sox down in that series. And, you know, let's take a look at example of, of Game 3. You know, we had two pitchers that, that went, you know, the, their distance. And then that game went even further. And then you, you brought in, you know, the their relief pitchers. You know, the one guy for the Red Sox just threw phenomenal six innings. And then it, there were the home run was hit, it, hit off him. Maybe the, Navaldi, the, the yeah. 18th, 18th, yeah. That's the 18th inning. I mean, that game went forever. <laughs> and then for them to be down, again, the Red Sox to be down in game four, four runs to zero, then them to come back and hit the three-run homer, then hitting a one-run homer the following inning, and then getting the runs i mean the dodgers really had the red sox on the run in those two games first two games in la and it was just the red sox were able to to work their way back and and maybe that just goes to show that you have to bring your a plus game every time you pitch against the red sox for nine innings not seven innings not six innings but you have to be on your a games for as long as you can it seemed to me that boston had a better team effort than los angeles mm-hmm. they seemed to be more of a cohesive unit yeah. as la um, you know I, I didn't like machado not machado not running getting that double even though yeah. it didn't hurt him mm-hmm. um little things like that i think brought the team down in my opinion now the other thing is I was pulling for the Dodgers in a few games to go seven because dad played yeah. in the Dodger yeah. organization for However, it was the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah. yeah. I guess you, and if I can digress just for a second, two things. One is I played with the Salem Senators for several years when the Northwest League was first founded. And in 1956, I, in fact, I always say I sent two uh, left fielders in a row to the big leagues. In 55, Floyd Robinson, Mm -hmm. who played for a number of years for the White Sox, was really a quality guy. And I was in San Diego a couple of years ago, and I I looked up and Floyd had had created a youth foundation, which I thought was outstanding. Mm -hmm. And then in 1956, Chuck Asijan, who was better known as uh, all uh, conference linebacker at Stanford, mm. a big strong guy, led our club in home runs and I think the Northwest League in home runs and uh, uh, he was brought in to pinch hit, I can't remember exactly what World Series it was, but the Dodgers were playing the White Sox and they brought Chuck in to pinch hit and uh, in Kaminsky Park in Chicago and he hit a home run and then the uh, uh, they changed the venue back to uh, Los Angeles and brought him into pinch hit, and he hit another home run. He had consecutive uh, pinch hit home runs. That's wow. your guy. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. my guy. That and, is awesome. And I, but the thing was, uh, my strength probably was my defense as a center fielder, and uh, I turned on TV one day, and here's the Seijin playing center field. I said, what the heck is he doing? I'm sitting here on the couch. <laughs> when we were playing in Salem, I played half of his field. And he's playing Well, that might not be totally true, but in my mind, it is. Dad, don't you have a story of Floyd Robinson playing left field and you were playing center field and you guys were both going for a ball? Yeah, well, I, let me just give you a little background. I played with Dick Winter, and Dick Winter was, uh, uh, played with uh, Portland for a number of years. Mm-hmm. He was a left fielder and a power hitter, and at the end of his career, he played for San Diego. He had 25 home runs, mm-hmm. but he played only against left-handed pitching. 
and Dick was going, uh, we were playing in the Sawdust League. They developed the Sawdust League. We were getting more money than the guys were getting in the Coast League wow. to play semi pro ball because yeah. the lumber business was going like mad. Mm-hmm. And every guy that we had on our team, I played for the Coos Bay North Bend Lumberjacks, mm-hmm. had had a few years of uh, uh, professional baseball under their belt. Well, Dick Winter wanted to take advantage of this and use mm-hmm. it as a stepping stone back into a normal job. And Dick's going to broadcasting school. <laughs> so every time a ball is hit to left center and I'm going for it, he's broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> he's practicing. Yeah, he's going, body. yeah, Jack's going back. I'm not sure he can get this one, Fitz. <laughs> and I'd go, Dick, cut that out. <laughs> oh, he made a great catch or he should have had it. He's broadcast. So I was doing that to Floyd Robinson. <laughs> he's chasing the ball down. And he let me know he didn't appreciate that, although it was in a friendly manner. Wow. So hmm. that was kind Kind of fun. That's awesome. That's a great story, and yeah. appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, and I have another one that, if, if it's all right for oh, me, oh, that's go fine. Ahead. Sure, yeah, go sure. ahead. Uh, we talked about eighteen innings the other night. Well, mm-hmm. on July, I think it was July fourth, uh, uh, in nineteen eighty-seven, uh, John's mother and I went down with the Murphys to see Dale play. Oh, so, Dale so we're watching the uh, Dale Murphy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're watching the. Uh, ball game with the Mets and it was 4th of July they're going to have fireworks and everything and, and Mr. Murph and I would always go in early because we like to watch batting practice so we'd go in with Dale so we'd be there half the night you know because they, they hit so early mm-hmm. we'd see the pre- pregame festivity and then the ladies would come in later and Dale's wife brought the kids to come in to see the fireworks well a game goes three innings and it starts raining oh, okay. and they won't call the game off so they start the game then around 11 o'clock or so. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, the ball, uh, the Mets are ahead uh, in the 12th inning. <laughs> uh, by one run, there's two outs. And Rick, there are no pinch hitters left. It's 2, 2.30. And so Rick Camp, it's the 4th of July, does not have a hit for the entire season. He's a pitcher. He's a pitcher. He's a pitcher. He was Atlanta's ace reliever. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so he's in there pitching. So he's got a hit. They got two strikes on him. And the pitcher throws the ball in there and Camp hits it. And I said to Mr. Murph, that's out of the ballpark. He says, you're damn right a it is. A reliever with and no it, hits on the yeah, season. And it tied the score. Well, oh but the interesting thing is the relief pitcher that was throwing ended up Tom Gorman. He was pitching for the Mets was my pitching coach for seven years at Portland State. Oh, wow. I, I never let him forget it. And Lenny Dykstra <laughs> was playing center field, and he turned around, and he threw his glove against the uh, center field fence, and the game went four more innings, oh. 19 innings, mm-hmm. and the Mets won, and Gorman got the win because there was no one left to pitch. And so they had promised, and, and the crowd had dwindled. There were 5,000 of us left. We were stuck. We are riding home with Dale. Dale's wife took the kids home about midnight because she didn't want them to stay up. They had a uh, fireworks as scheduled, 5 a.m. in 5 the morning. <laughs> People are calling City Hall and the police department. Oh the God. town is under no siege. No way. We um, got it's home. It's the 5th of July. I'm, we're staying with Dale. We get home at, at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning. 
Oh, geez, and they moved the next day's game up because it was uh, so long. But coincidentally, Gorman, uh, Tom Gorman, was a winning pitcher. Wow. And he Tom- told me, he said, I could... He said, I thought I could throw it by camp and we'd get out of there. <laughs> Interesting about Tom Gorman, a left-handed great pitcher from Woodburn High School, mm, pitched at Gonzaga, mm-hmm. and we played against him when uh, we were at Portland State, and my brother Jeff hit a home run down at Civic Stadium off him. But the funny thing is uh, Tom's nickname is Gorfax. After Sandy, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> oh, that is funny. I can funny. tell you a couple more Gorman stories. But uh, we went to Los Angeles when uh, Dale was playing uh, with the Phillies, and uh, Dykstra had been traded over, and uh, oh, uh, Fireside uh, was wanted to do an oh, interview. Roy, Roy Fireside, Roy, yeah. Firestone was it? Is it Firestone? Firestone. Roy Firestone. Firestone. There we go. Firestone. No, cool. yeah. okay. It's been so yeah. long ago. No, that's right. And so uh, Adele said, "Why don't you guys come with us and watch the shoot?" So that's when I talked to Dykstra, and we rehashed when he was with the Mets mm-hmm. in that nineteen inning game. I says, "Gorman told me he thought he could throw it by," and I said, "I remember you throwing your glove against the center field fence." He says, Garmin couldn't throw it by my grandma. <laughs> he was mad as heck because it's That's 3 o'clock funny. in the morning. Oh, that is so funny. Well, those are some those are some fantastic stories. I love hearing them. And um, so thank you for sharing those with us. Uh, so our first question um, that I want to pose to you, Jack, is – what was what got you into baseball like originally at a, like a younger age? What was what was what was that all the about? Motivational like, factor. Well, I used to spend a lot of time out on the farm uh, with my uh, at my grandma's farm, and I had some uncles, and they would listen to Raleigh Truett broadcast the Portland Beaver game every night. And finally, I I was listening to them. Nineteen thirties. Nineteen thirty-five was the first game I ever heard, and then thirty-six. I kept giving my mom the business, mm-hmm. and she took me to a ball game, and uh, that just kind of triggered it. And they would play with us out in the field, and they played a little semi-pro ball with the Beaverton team and sylvan had a team and you know kind of a sunday farmers league of course that was before i I never did see them play but that was probably the impetus that got me going Mm -hmm. and then i lived in multnomah and multnomah even in the days we didn't have little league or anything multnomah was progressive in that they had uh young kids softball and older kids' softballs. Mm. Multnomah Hardware had the older kids. Multnomah mm. Drug, the younger kids. They were ahead of the curve, yeah. Yeah, definitely. and they mm. had uh, uh, West Portland Merchants, and I just latched on, became their bat boy. And then uh, in those days, uh, the only high school on the west side was Lincoln, so I, the Multnomah kids all went there, and there were quite a few uh, Lincoln kids uh, from Multnomah, and they were outstanding in Legion, and and uh, so I just kind of attached with them, went down and started bat boy for Wade Williams, and the rest is history. I hmm. just kept going. Wow. Uh, so 
my brother, I talked about this on a previous episode. My brother corrected me on like who my favorite baseball player was and my kind of my inspiration of wanting to play baseball at the time. And I'll get over to my question in a second, but I, you know, talk about the Atlanta Braves. I was a big Atlanta Braves fan in like the early nineties. So I remember mm-hmm. like the, they were always on TV. The, yeah. yeah. yeah how TV. could you not be? <laughs> yeah. Like the, you know, the David Justice, the Fred McGriff, Terry Pendleton's, the, the pitching staff, Tom Glavins, Greg Maddox, yeah. John Avery. Smoltz, Steve Avery. Yeah. You know, just that pitching staff. And, you know, my brother corrected me. He's like, you know, it wasn't Greg Maddox or, you know, Greg, you know Tom Glavin. It was David Juster that you liked because he, you know, yeah. stayed up with the bat. But for you, who who was your, like, that guy that you always looked up to and maybe you wanted to pretend to, to be like when you were playing at a younger age? Well, we didn't have the exposure to television to to see. Uh, so my my ball players were the Pacific Coast League. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I had a few favorite players, uh, mostly center fielders, and uh, of course Dom DiMaggio. Yeah, DiMaggio came through. DiMaggio yeah. uh, was a center fielder that uh, was good. There were several of them, and I don't know if I had one in particular or not. But one thing about the Old Coast League was that they traveled by train, and they had every Monday off, and. They played seven game series. Yeah. It wasn't a three four wow. like we're used to now. The team would come to town. They'd play Tuesday a doubleheader on uh, Sunday. That was their seven games, and they'd go. So, two the Beavers would be home for two weeks straight. You'd see two opponents, then mm-hmm. they're gone for two weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And while we're discussing this, you know, one of the things that I saw was, when I was listening to the documentary Farewell Beavers was it talked about um, some of the older guys about how when they pitched during this this era that you're talking about, they mm-hmm. they, they pitched seven nine innings. And yes, they're like, no we point. don't have relief into extras. Nothing, even, we yeah. don't any extras. And nowadays, you're looking like we just saw the World Series. Yeah. Those guys were pitching six to seven innings, maybe yeah. a little bit less. Yeah. What's your take on that during this this era? Of time? Well, uh, Roy Love, the former coach of the uh, Portland State, Roy always said, well, uh, if, if uh, you're going to pitch, if you're going to run the mile, you better practice running the mile. Mm-hmm. And he paralleled it to the pitchers going three and four innings. They can't go nine innings because they haven't been doing it. When I played, and and I'm not saying this is correct, I'm, I played, my first year of professional baseball was for Medford, Brooklyn Dodgers, had Medford as a Class D, mm. <clears throat> excuse me, Far West League club. Climber mm-hmm. Falls was Philadelphia, and it went right on down. And our pitching coach, or our manager, was a Larry Shepard, who ended up being Sparky Anderson's pitching coach during, yeah, oh. no, in Cincinnati, oh, during Detroit, the year Detroit, yeah. of the... Uh, of the big red machine. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know what Larry did? And this was standard operating procedure. If you pitched the night before, you not only pitched nine innings, if you could go nine innings, mm-hmm. you were the next day's batting practice pitcher. <laughs> and today they'd wow. shoot you if you, yeah, if you did that. <laughs> wow. But they also would not let us play golf. They would not let us swim. They would not let us uh, lift weights. Mm-hmm. And they had no no uh, 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 what would I say uh, educational reason. They had no 
no, th- th- these were old wives' tales passed on from right. generation to generation. Yeah, and now, th- now those are in contracts where yeah. you'll see that you can't do X, Y, or Z, yeah. and we want you to only focus in on, on baseball. So that was that's interesting that, you know, you, it's kind of continuing along, well, but now it's more contractual. Well, I think that... Uh, I don't see taking a, uh, a particular, I'm speaking more at the youth level too, mm-hmm. you know, college. And and uh, if a guy's going well and his pitch counts within reason, uh, I kept him in the ball game because I think there's a transition. You have to bring another guy in. There's a chance that uh, he gets, while he's getting over his nervousness, he might give up a couple, three runs. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I always felt that if he were doing well, uh, I would leave him in if his pitch count were within reason. And within reason, what's that, 15 to 17 pitches? I don't know what it is today. Mm-hmm. But, per uh, inning, it's out. Yeah, per, per inning. Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, and, and you'd ha- you could tell too by arm angle dropping down and whether he's tired or not. Which, as a co- now, you got your coaching hat on at the minute because you're you're obviously clearly speaking about about pitching and how many pitches per inning. What what was your limit on number of pitches that a uh, uh, somebody could legitimately throw in a game before you're like, okay, I always, once we get to this count, he's this person's done. I looked at that 15 to 17 pitch, mm-hmm. and then yeah. mm-hmm. then we kept a running total of that because you might get out of the inning in a couple, three pitches. Yeah. See, and I, I have to bring this up because this bugs me. Uh, I'm digressing again. When I watch the Dodgers play, they're down 5-1. to one. The uh, I can't remember who. Oh, I think it was it uh, Price. Yeah, for the yeah, Boston. For this yeah. latest game, Boston. yeah, Price, yeah. Okay, he walks the first guy, so they take him out. Now they bring a relief pitcher in. You're down 5-1. to one. You have to have a grand slam to tie it. So they bring in the relief pitcher. The first pitch he throws is a ball, and you're swinging at the next pitch, which is a borderline pitch. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. Take till you get a strike in that instance. Absolutely. Yeah. To my way of thinking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, you're at that. You don't. Yeah, what are you couple. doing? Well, what about you, John? What do you think? I mean, you were you were a pitcher, right? Like, you know, what do you think about like this pitching limit? Like, what was your your mentality on this? I mean, you're clearly I got you know, Pops was the coach. I mean, oh, you, yeah. you were the pitcher. What Pop, was Pops? Pops always left me in. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And he knew I was a competitor, and I wanted I wanted the ball, and I wanted to compete. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, maybe the next day I was a little sore, but uh, but I. I wanted to battle, you know. I'm yeah. a competitor. I remember when I was younger and I pitched in high school and I pitched in Little League and just that, you know, I'm a competitor. I want to, like, stay in there and, like, I want to throw the baseball. I want to throw it as hard as I can. I want to, you know, strike, you know, that person out. And I was so excited when I, like, get that strikeout. But, you know, in, in youth baseball, especially in, like, Little League at the time when I was playing, you could only, like, pitch six innings and that that was it. And you were done for four or five days until you could legitimately pitch what was again. Your, what was your best pitch in college? My fastball, fastball. Until probably my senior year. How yeah. hard did you throw? Uh, they didn't have guns back then, but I was hard probably mid eighties. I would guess yeah. not real. But I was kind of crafty later in my gotcha. career. You could you could really locate. Yeah, yeah. See, I think they put so much emphasis upon velocity mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Pitching is 
The purpose of pitching is to disrupt the hitter's timing. And you can do that with an average fastball if you can change speeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we saw David Price do that a oh, couple sure. times during the World Series. He was I mean, he crafty. Just, yeah. he was, he was but baseball is a tribalistic ritual passed down from generation to generation. That's Earnshaw Cook, who mm-hmm. was the head of, I think, the math department at Princeton. And uh, he did the book Percentage Baseball. Mm-hmm. And that's what his conclusion was. Yeah, because it doesn't hold up to public scrutiny or, yeah. or math, mathematical scrutiny. And uh, Slow to change. Yeah, very slow, slow to change. The mentality, the attitude yeah. is slow so to change. So they say, well, well, this guy, everybody knows that uh, you don't do this, that you don't pitch a guy and you do such and such. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, if I go against what is kind of the accepted the norm, thing... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then everybody says, don't you know what's going on? So they're afraid to to uh, be innovative, I the, think. The Kansas City manager, they, they won it. But I remember they were always talking about how non-traditional or unpredictable. He, and they used a lot of interesting language in describing the KC manager. Oh, what was his name? But, you know, many managers. Ned, Ned. Ned Yost. Mm-hmm. You know, and he managed him to a couple World Series. And yeah. you could tell there was there's kind of baseball purest kind of reservation mm-hmm. when they talk talk about him the, the moves that he made and this and that I mean yeah. he won, they won a World Series well you so. can say the same thing for the yeah. uh, the Diamondbacks coach when they had Randy Johnson and they had Kurt Schilling in the year yeah. that they beat the Yankees in the World Series and how much they pitched mm-hmm. them and I said look at Alex Cora in this particular World Series I mean you know every game it's like He's, all or nothing with him and I think he did yeah, one heck yeah. of a job he was playing it by feel yeah, yeah. he really was Talking about disruptors, Tom House, the uh, famed pitching coach, Jack was the first coach to have him come to the big Portland State baseball clinic Mm. and introduce Tom House in his new way of pitching and his mechanics. Now he's Mm. kind of retired, but there was a disruptive thinker that went against old wives' tales and brought science and biomechanics into Mm -hmm. pitching and into hitting. Wow. Plus, he caught Hank Aaron's record-breaking oh, home run he? in the bullpen. He got more credit oh, for that oh, really? than he did being That's a where genius. I may recognize wow. that name yeah, sure. somewhere back it. in there. Yeah. Okay. He That's... was, I think, in Atlanta, and he got yeah. up on the bullpens in left field and runs wow. over and makes a catch. But he was a very bright guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Dave Freeland, who was scouting for San Diego uh, in this area and was uh, Harvey's uh, bird dog, said, Jack, you've got to get this guy. He's outstanding. He said, I heard him. So I brought him up, and I had a couple of guys say, well, who in the heck is that guy? What are you bringing him up here for? Mm-hmm. Well, after they heard him speak, they said, bring him up again. Bring mm-hmm. him up next year. And this was a clinic that we put on that Roy Love started when there were no such thing as clinic. Right. right and Don, going back to, the, I think the first clinic was 19... 19- 60, and we had uh, Don Kirsch from Oregon. We had the top uh, high school guys, and it was a major clinic in this area. And then mm-hmm. Tom House came up and spoke at it. And, and what what I did when I took over for Roy was to uh, uh, try to expand it, try to make it a, a Portland State, the center of baseball for the state as best we could. And... Uh, to uh, have the coaches pick out good coaches. A guy might be out in the Thule someplace 
and he only gets nine guys that walk through the door, and he wins all the time. Mm-hmm. He's doing he's developing, something right. Yeah. He's developing. Yeah, yeah, so what are you doing? Just because you're out there doesn't mean you're any less of a coach. Yeah, and you can say that with any kind of sport. Yeah, like, sure. you know, It's all about you know, the development. No matter, you know, let's just take college football, for example. No matter, like, how many five-star recruits that you get, it's all about what you can do to develop them and whether yeah. or not they can become a cohesive unit as, as a team and, and win together as a team, not as individuals. So, yes, and yet you have to have overriding philosophy, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, my offensive philosophy was simply get on third base with less than two outs. So small ball if a small ball attack, oh yeah. you take small well, ball. Yeah. Now now what do you do? So you instead of having traditional batting practice, you set up first and third situation, put a team in the field, let the coach pitch. You're mm-hmm. getting your batting practice, but the base runners are learning to run first yeah. to third, when to read, no base coaches. And then if they make a mistake, we stop it. That's where I got the title genial. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, and you you stop and say, no, what was your interpretation? What was your read? We would switch the outs. And, and it becomes a multiple drill, and you're implementing your philosophy. Mm-hmm. Now you get a guy on third base in less than two outs. You have to make the decision whether you're going to play back or play in. Mm-hmm. If you play in, you double my chances. If you play back, you concede the run. Yeah. Now, were you Put doing, the pressure on the defense, yeah. Well, sure. So at the same time, I mean, the ba- you're, you're obviously clearly, what you just said is making the base runners, hey, you, you make that decision. Yeah. What about the batter at the same time? I mean, so if you're, you got runners on the corners, you know, one out, are they making that decision? Well, I'm going to bunt the ball. No, or I make I'm that decision. You're making that call. So you're, you're the no. one making the call. Oh, this, let me tell you this story. I always I like to bunt with runners on first and second, and I've been an advocate of this for 40 years. A few guys are coming around. Or maybe even Pat look. Casey's <laughs> kind of coming around. Yeah, yeah well, I noticed. Well, yeah. with runners on first and second, turn early. Show let them er- know you're bunt. Show early, huh? Mm-hmm. Why not? Yeah. You know I'm butting anyway, so why should I put, with the guys throwing 90-some miles an hour, why should I have to make that adjustment? There's another adjustment. Do I start early? Yeah. Get up front in the box to increase the chance of getting the ball fair. Show you I'm butting. Now, if you, that now I'm in a position I can counter whatever you do mm-hmm. defensively. And one of the things in that situation, the shortstop will run to third. They'll charge the corner. It'll change the so, direction. Yeah, of the you're, you're, whether you're push bunting or drag bunting it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, uh, so, as soon as you evacuate, that's my hitter's automatic cue that he's slapping. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. all infields are. And we teach this slap bunt in, in a certain way. But with, anyway, that's my philosophy. We're playing Washington State my last trip in there. Bobo Brayton's a coach. And uh, we, we beat him in the first game of the doubleheader, and we were up three or four runs. So I wanted to, to get a little cushion. We get the first two guys on in the eighth. So I have this give the kid the bunt sign. He doesn't want to bunt. He wants to hit naturally. I haven't seen a guy that wanted to sacrifice. So I give him the sign. And he looks at me again. I give him the sign again. Then he gives me the circle with his index finger, which means go around again. So I give it to him again. And he still doesn't get it. So he calls 
time out ties his shoe, which is the ultimate. That was, if I tie my shoe, that means I haven't got a clue. Well, while he's tying his shoe, Bobo walks up out of the dugout and yells, cups his hands, yells at the kid, he wants you to bunt. <laughs> and I said, that's right. <laughs> and he successfully bunted. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we got it down because we turned early anyway. And part of the humor there is that Dad's used the same bunt sign for about 50 years. <laughs> and everyone in the world knows the bunt sign. Except, except, <laughs> except his own players. <laughs> so show us the bunt sign. What's the bunt sign? It's just a peck of the pants. Okay. And I got that when I was playing at Salem from Hugh Louie and I I thought, heck, that's pretty good. Wow. Um, so, you know, we're running a little bit, you know, over on this. And, I, you oh. know, I know we want to make this a oh. four-part four series. But um, to kind of finalize this part one, uh, you know, of our four-part, uh, you know, podcast episodes here, um, let's go to Vaughn Street Park real quick. You know, Dave and I did uh, an episode on Vaughn Street Park and um, how it was, uh, you know, 12, it went from, I think, a 6,000-seat stadium to a 12,000-seat stadium. There were lots of fires there. You know, Dave and I was like, everything burned in Portland as far as <laughs> yeah, like a, a baseball point. field yeah. go. Um, explain a day at the ballpark in Vaughn Street as, you know, going there personally. Well, first of all, uh, do we have enough time for me to tell you another story? We got. We can take as much time as you want. Okay. The general manager uh, of the of the Beavers was a Bill Garbarino, and Bill was a nice. I always liked Bill, and we were young guys, and so if, if Vaughn Street was on Twenty Fourth Street, but left field was like on Twenty Sixth, mm -hmm. and all of us guys knew that if you went out there, shinnied up the power pole, there was a. Uh, a cross arm that would take you to the left field, back of the left field bleachers, and there was a loose point. So you'd get down. Uh, we could sneak into the ballpark. <laughs> well, during the week, they didn't draw enough, so the bleachers in left field were closed. And But they had a long grandstand all the way from home plate down to left field, and the grandstand was open. And there were right field bleachers that usually were open. So one day, we go down after we had American Legion practice, and then we go down with this friend of mine who lived in Slabtown. We went and climbed up the pole and, and jiggled the board and got through and put ourselves down below the bleachers, and we come up to get in the grandstand. Here's a policeman. Oh. And he nails us. Which is waiting. Yeah, he was waiting. And uh, he was the dad of a gal I went to high school with, but he didn't know that we were classmates. And he, you thought, thought he had just captured uh, John Dillinger, public enemy number one. He grabbed the two of us and he took us down to the office. And he, I got these guys sneaking in, and, and he to takes us into Garbarino's office. I got these guys sneaking in here, and they're trying to sneak in. And, and uh, Garbarino's real calm. He goes, Joe, I'll take care of it. Joe Rossi was his name. He says. I'll take care of it. You go ahead and go back and watch that. Make sure nobody sneaks in. So Joe goes back, and once Joe leaves, he puts us in box seats behind home plate. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's one of my cherished memories. That's cool. Uh, and, and in Legion, we played our opening Legion games at the ballpark, which was quite a thing. Wow. But that as far cool. as the baseball games were concerned, uh, we really loved them. 
and you could get a hot dog and a Coke for, I don't, I think maybe a quarter at most. Wow. And so, and I, I can't remember what it cost to get in, but it wasn't very much. Hmm. But we liked the atmosphere because we were all baseball oriented. And yeah. those guys, all of the Beaver players and even the, the opponents we followed uh, in the paper. They got great press in the Oregonian and, and Raleigh Truett broadcasts all the games. Print media. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was, it was super... So in, in the episode we did on Vaughn and the research, it, talk, it talked about, in the pictures I saw, there was a uh, the factory yeah. behind right field. And it said, it, said, it said that a player could legitimately hit a pop fly and if it was going to be a home run, but it would be lost in that smoke so they could have a ball in the back pocket oh, and pull trick. it out. And like <laughs> he got it. Well, there was a... Baseball a, exaggeration or fact? Yeah. Well, we call that the foundry. Yeah. That, that's the term for it, the foundry. And there was a high, high right field fence. And uh, there was always a certain smell that came from the foundry that I associated, and everyone else did, with baseball. And I'd smell it in different places and immediately remind me of mm-hmm. Old Vaughn Street. I never saw it uh, like that. Mm-hmm. and But the, the smell was there because wow. they were, the, whatever the foundry did, uh, it left an aroma. Wow. Well, that's an excellent uh, way to you know end yeah. end this particular episode of the podcast. Um, I just really uh, want to thank both John and, and Jack for you know sharing Appreciate stories it. with us. Uh, you know we're we'll, we'll have them on it have them on again. Uh, you know on our next episode for next week. Um, but for now, uh, thank you so much, sirs, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Ben. And I'm Dave. And uh, peace out. <laughs> <laughs>